Once again, good afternoon, everyone, and please join me in welcoming our TV audience and webcast viewers. <laughs> My name is Danny Asaf, and I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and have the pleasure of being your host this afternoon. Thank you again for joining us. The Canadian Club is proud of its rich tradition of providing a forum for leaders in all spheres of society to share their ideas. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we have been at the forefront of providing a platform for insightful and diverse perspectives on the issues of the day. Through our programs and our activities, including our youth and young leaders programs, diversity partnerships, media and social uh, opportunities, we offer you access to dynamic political, business and public figures from here at home and around the world. And before I formally introduce today's guest speaker, I would like to take the opportunity, if you'll allow me, to tell you about a couple of our upcoming events. On November 10th, we have uh, Stephen Carlisle, President and General Managing Director of General Motors of Canada, will be at our podium to discuss innovation and the future of the auto industry in Canada. And on November, November 13th, we have Twitter's Kirsten Stewart will join Catalyst Canada's Alex Johnston for a candid conversation about female leadership and the world of work. You can order your tickets and review the club's full list of events at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter. Please follow us at CDNCLUBTO or simply using that hashtag. And today I would also like to welcome and thank our sponsor, Colleges Ontario. Thank you for your generous support for helping us put this important event on for our members and guests. Today we're here to discuss an important issue one that impacts the future of our province and of our country, and it's competitive both domestically and globally. As we are all concerned about the growth of our economy and the opportunities for youth, we know there are three important ingredients to that formula. Number one is to have an able workforce. Number two, is an opportunity to join that workforce and have a potential job. And thirdly, we need to have the knowledge and the skill to put ourselves in a position to do that work. And the linchpin to all of that are our post-secondary uh, secondary institutions and our own colleges. When we think about the role and the prevalence of Ontario's Colleges Ontario in our day-to-day -day lives, I have one, statistics, one statistic which says more than 500,000 students and clients are served by Ontario colleges each year. And of that number, approximately 200,000 are full-time and connected to these important institutions as that pathway to participating and helping us all grow our economy. And that is the reality that David Agnew faces every day. He is chair of Colleges Ontario, the advocacy organization that represents the province's 24 colleges 
of Applied Arts and Technology. As well, he serves as president of one of the largest and most diverse colleges, Seneca. He is Seneca College's, College's fifth president and has been in that role since 2009. In addition, Mr. Agnew has worked extensively in both the public and non-public, private, and non-profit sectors, including from 1992 to 1995, he was secretary to the cabinet of the Ontario government. Prior to that, he served as principal secretary to the premier. His leadership path has been long and winding, and he has served as president and CEO of UNICEF Canada as well. And in addition, he was the principal of the international consulting firm Digital Foresight, where he is also, and he has also held the role of executive vice president and corporate secretary for the Credit Union Central of Ontario. In addition, he was ombudsman for banking services and investments in the, Na the National Dispute Service for Customers and Small Business. And Mr. Agnew continues as the college president, dedicating time to service, to service on various boards and committees besides his chairmanship of Colleges Ontario. And these organizations include the Toronto Region Immigrant Employment Council, TRIAC, Civic Action Steering Committee, and Venture Lab, a person well qualified in his current position to guide us through these important times. And on that note, I would like to introduce Mr. Agnew and turn our podium over to you. Thank you very much. Well, my goodness, that was generous. I could have listened all afternoon. <laughs> it was, uh, thank you very much, Danny. Um, I, I've been told that uh, I'm not supposed to introduce anybody because uh, the head table's been acknowledged, and of course, we have lots of people who deserve to be recognized. I have many colleagues here from uh, Seneca. I have many colleagues from the post-secondary system, partners in government, and so on. Uh, so I won't introduce uh, but one person, and I just want to uh, say what a delight it is to be joined at this lunch by the Honorable Michael Wilson, who, as, uh, as I'm sure, was grateful that he was watching TV a couple of weeks ago um, and not uh, actually in the fray, but whose contribution to Canada uh, has been simply extraordinary. And, of course, for those of us in uh, post-secondary who are dealing with a lot of students who have uh, mental health issues, we, we salute you for uh, really changing the game and changing the conversation about mental health in Canada. Michael Wilson. Well, Danny uh, was very generous in his introduction. Before uh, we started the lunch, I told him that it's been 74 years since an Agnew uh, had the platform of the Canadian Club. My great-uncle, Gordon Agnew, uh, spoke to this club in uh, 1941. He was a missionary. He was a dentist um, and, uh, in China. And, in fact, he was, for nearly 25 years, he was at the... Uh, uh, called the West China Union University. It no longer, it, it kind of morphed into, into a different entity. But uh, he, he spoke here in 1941. And of course, if, you know, if you think about the time in China, it was their war with Japan. There were, actually, the communists were quite strong. We, the, the nationalist government, what turned into the nationalist government. Uh, and, and, but a lot of the country, what we now know as a country of, of China, was actually ruled by warlords. Now, unfortunately, a, a copy of his speech doesn't uh, exist. There apparently there was a flood in the Canadian club. I guess that was before they got out of the basement. Um, but the, the, uh, the story he told, I, I knew him, of course, he's been gone many years, but I, I knew him as a child, um, 
was that, uh, of course, there was, it was part of a medical school, and uh, this was set up by, by churches to, uh, to, to not just uh, be missionaries, but also to educate. And uh, it was uh, the, the, the head of the anatomy department had a terrible time because they just, they, you know, you have, there's a certain requirement to teach anatomy, and that's you need cadavers. And he was having a hard time uh, getting a hold of them. They were on very good terms with the warlord, uh, who kind of ran the district, and, and uh, because he thought this was a great thing to bring education to his people. And so, uh, with some trepidation, the, the, the dean of the, the head of the Department of Anatomy wrote the warlord and said, we, we know that um, you, you occasionally have to dispose of uh, people. Um, w- w- is it possible if you could kind of ship them over this way after you're done? And uh, Warlord said, "Absolutely." So, so uh, they had a fairly, fairly robust pipeline. I'm t- there, there was a problem, though, which was they were beheaded. And so, the, after a while, the, the students had a certain parts of the anatomy that they're lacking uh, much knowledge in because it was missing. So he wrote back. I uh, said, "Look, I, you know, this is fantastic. Could you, could you possibly um, uh, send them with head intact?" The response was. I'll just send them to you live. You do whatever you want. <laughs> so, so I always say, you know, today we, you know, we worry about stakeholder relations. I think we've got it easy, actually. Anytime I think I've got a bad day, I think back to my uh, my great uncle. Uh, well, in a moment of, of I think, total, uh, as Alan Greenspan used to say, irrational exuberance, I ambitiously uh, titled this talk, uh, Ontario's College is Time to Chart a New Direction in Higher Education. Uh, an ambitious topic, um, and perhaps before I leap into the future, I think it's helpful to ground ourselves in a little history. And so let's look back, uh, in fact, about 10 years back when my old boss, Bob Ray, was commissioned by the then Premier, Mr. McGinty, to, to, uh, to do a report on higher education. Of course, what he was looking at was, was you know, how do you make the system uh, better? How do you make sure that uh, the colleges and universities of Ontario were institutions of, of course, of quality, of uh, accessibility and accountability? Um, none of those three words, of course, are, are strange to anyone who's running a post-secondary institution today. We embrace them. So when he wrote his report, the starting point for his uh, diagnosis was pretty blunt. He said, we have a large, mature system without a sufficiently clear sense of purpose and without enough money to do the job. He talked about the uh, system's efforts being pretty diffuse and, in fact, uh, even in some ways inefficient. Um, and he concluded by saying, the first step towards solving this challenge is to establish a mission for Ontario as a leader in learning. This mission will help us achieve our goals for reform, great education, improved opportunities for more people to attend, and a secure future for higher education. So I think it's 10 years. It's, it's worth looking back now. How much progress have we made since that report was tabled? And where do we go for the next decade? And I will argue that while we've progressed in some areas, I think we've slipped back in others. And I and I would, I would say to this, uh, to this group and I'd say to, to others that we need to recommit ourselves to finding a way forward that will, in fact, continue to build a post-secondary education system that serves the students, serves the employers, serves the people of Ontario, a system of excellence, a system that meets those tests of quality, accountability, and accessibility. But first, I think it's necessary to acknowledge some, uh, as Al Gore said, inconvenient but perhaps even uncomfortable truths about our post-secondary system. And the first of those, I would argue, is that money does matter. With the adoption of the Reaching Higher policy in 2005 uh, in the government, um, there was a healthy injection of of, uh, post-secondary funding that came into the system. We uh, reached uh, levels of per-student public support that we hadn't had since 
the first half of the 1990s. But since 2008, and here's the uncomfortable truth part, there's been a slow and steady erosion of the per-student funding support in post-secondary. In fact, we're back to those same levels when it was found that we didn't have enough money to do the job. And we have a sustainability issue amongst colleges and universities that has to be acknowledged and addressed. It will not fix itself. And this, it's, it's, it's not some kind of self-inflicted wound. There are relentless and inexorable demographics that are driving lower enrollments in several parts of the province. And they risk exacerbating divides amongst north-south, large, small, urban, rural. And without a significant change in direction, the financial situation of some post-secondary institutions in this province will likely become even more, as they say today, precarious. Second is that the post-secondary sector is, I would argue, unique amongst public sector systems in two fundamental ways. First is that we operate in a highly competitive environment, both against each other and against increasingly the world, and in many institutions now receive less than half of their funding from the government. Let me stop on that point. There are institutions in this room that receive less than 40, even less than 35% of their revenue from government. Student, student tuition, of course, has become our largest source of revenue. And I would argue that both of those factors make us quite different from the vast majority of the broader public sector organizations and entities that the government deals with, whether that's a hospital, a school board, or, of course, many social service agencies. This isn't some kind of special pleading. It's pointing out the obvious, which is that it deeply complicates, I would argue, even muddies the public policy framework in which we operate. On the one hand, we're expected to be you know, market-oriented, very competitive with each other, <coughs> both domestically and increasingly internationally. And that inevitably implies, those of you from the private sector know well, risk-taking, innovation, both of which, uh, you know, is accompanied by the the occasional failure. I was in an innovators conference and they were talking about the, you know, F being the new A. Well, F isn't a letter that a lot of people, I have to say, like to hear up the street uh, with an opposition party, with a media gallery, and with social media always on the watch. Competition also drives certain behaviors in the recruitment, the marketing, the admissions in our sector that we think are completely both necessary and normal, but which taken out of our context, put into another, would seem quite strange, perhaps even unseemly. It would be as if northern school boards were supported by the provincial government to come down to the GTA to recruit students. It would be as if the hospitals got together, rented the convention center or the energy center, and tried to recruit patients out of each other's backyards. Yet both of those things are happening today in post-secondary. On the other hand, colleges are crown agencies, subject to a range of rules and regulations that were written for a different, I think, much less competitive world than the, than the one we operate in. Finally, in the uncomfortable truth category, we need to acknowledge that in many ways the post-secondary institutions that comprise the higher education uh, world in Ontario are not always a system. There are 44 publicly assisted institutions that occasionally work together, but more than often do not, or at least not enough. There are some very strong and productive bilateral relationships around the, uh, around the province, lots of them. York and Seneca are great partners. We're doing lots of things together. But on a multilateral basis, well, when we do get together, we tend to congregate with the universities on that side and the colleges on that side. And yet within those two bodies, there are some differences that are perhaps as profound as the college-university line. Research-intensive universities compete for the top you know, ranks, uh, you know, the, the league tables around the world. They're, they're, they're knocking their brains out to try to get up the list. 
They carry that same label of university as small, very small, undergraduate-focused universities. Amongst colleges, we have major urban institutions that uh, perhaps in some systems would be called polytechnics, um, with growing baccalaureate degree and, and graduate certificate enrollments um, alongside smaller colleges focused primarily on diplomas. Yet at the same time, anyone who works today in post-secondary will tell you that we're sharing the same students. The past year at Seneca, nearly 40% of our students had been already to another college or a university. In fact, in our winter semester, 10% of our students had been to graduate school. Of course, it's even higher amongst our part-time students, many of whom are new Canadians and coming to Canadianize their credential or their expertise. And of course, the traffic the other way is huge in terms of you know, college to university transfers, lots and lots of college students going on to university, sometimes coming back for one of those graduate certificates. It hasn't always been that way. In fact, when Mr. Davis led that inspired decision to set up the college system back in 1967, uh, it was a deliberate choice to create a parallel system, not a subordinate one. In fact, although we're casually referred to as community colleges, we're not. It's really interesting to read Mr. Davis's speeches from those days. He, he does backflips to avoid saying community college because he went to the U.S. and, and specifically saw that, mar that model of junior college, community college, and rejected it. He saw, they saw, two systems side by side operating separately with colleges meeting that demand for increasingly sophisticated occupations. The word of the day in, back in 1967 was automation. People were putting these big IBM 360s in and training people how to use them and so on. They saw that, that need for you know, uh, managers, class, and so on, as well as higher level technologists. And that was what the void that the colleges were meant to, to uh, fill. And of course, take yourself back to 60s, the 60s. Universities took in far fewer students than they do today. It was much more of an elite that went to university. But of course, as with so many other domains, the customer decided it was different. They wanted a different reality. And so literally from the get-go, the students at colleges started to leap that metaphorical fence and wanted to go to university, and they demanded that we create the pathways to make it easier for them to do so. And that was really the start of the pathways and the articulation agreements and everything else amongst us that I think now has led us to a different and a more unified view, particularly from the student view, a more unified view of post-secondary in Ontario than the architects had ever planned. Now, I know in polite company it's not nice to talk about money, but you can't have a conversation about the future of higher education, I'm sorry, without talking about how you're going to pay for it. You know, I travel internationally, and in my less competitive moments, and there are the occasional one, I am so proud to say to any student, to any parent, to any government official around the world, that the great thing about the Ontario education system is that you cannot go wrong going to a publicly assisted institution. All 44 of us offer a great education with terrific graduates who have gone on to great careers and great accomplishments. And along the way, they've, built, they've helped us build a huge reputation for Canadian education around the world. And I give enormous credit to the faculty, the staff, and yes, those administrators, those poor administrators, I give a huge amount of credit to them because they are doing more with less. Great teaching and learning is happening around the province every day in labs and classes online and wherever for our students, both domestic and international. And I say internationally advisedly because, of course, 
the number of international students in Ontario has grown tremendously. The last number I saw, I think, was two years old. It was about 115,000. It's probably close to 150,000 today. Collectively, they represent a huge globalization of our campuses, an enrichment of the student experience, but let's be honest, it also represents billions of dollars that are coming into this province, much of it spent, I would say, parenthetically, outside any campus's walls. And in the face of that public funding reality and the tuition caps for domestic students, that international tuition has become a vital and sustaining source of revenue for virtually all of Ontario's colleges and universities. You know, I hear the old argument, well, yes, but I know, but they're taking advantage of, of, of publicly built uh, infrastructure, and I'm sorry, that, that argument has turned about 180 degrees. They are helping us build new buildings. They are helping us fix old buildings. They are helping us put in programs and supports that are helping our domestic students. And I believe the newfound importance of international students in Ontario has awoken us to another reality, which is that the true competition and the true opportunity is not across the GTA, it's not even across another province, it's the world. And, it's, and it too ought to be a determining factor in the future shape of our system. So with that as background, let me outline three elements of a new direction for post-secondary education in, in Ontario and what we need to do together to get there. As a start, I think we need to establish a true partnership between colleges and universities that dispenses with the notion of a hierarchy and rests instead on the principle that we're both the building blocks of a student-centered system with different but complementary strengths. As reskilling, as second, as third, as fourth careers become more commonplace, colleges and universities will continue, perhaps increasingly share the same students because they're going to be pursuing their goals wherever it makes the most sense. Yet there persists an implied or assumed rank in the post-secondary world rather than a mutual understanding of our different strengths. To some extent, I believe it reflects a nostalgia when the lines of demarcation are much clearer. But I would also argue there's no going back. In colleges, our sophistication, our expertise have grown, our credentials are evolving, and they'll continue to evolve because student needs, because the economy, and because work itself is evolving and will continue to do so. You know, other, other countries have done a better job of inculcating a, a sense of respect for the applied education that colleges deliver. Career, profession-focused education with its hardwired connection to employment and the workplaces of the province. These are vital to moving our workforce, our economy, into that new world of the digital, of the knowledge spaces. China has told 600 of its universities that they must become polytechnics. India has this massive skills development agenda underway, half a billion young people uh, by, in the next 10 years who need to be trained up on, on skills. It's extraordinary. They're appreciating the importance of sophisticated, in many ways, technology-infused applied education and training for their economies. And they're turning increasingly, and this is actually something we're also all getting involved in, they're turning increasingly to Ontario institutions for advice and help and to build those systems. And I just have to tell you, build them they will, and we ignore that trend at our peril. We also need to get the balance between government and the system right. That means making sure the institutions that have the responsibility of delivering that quality, that accountable, that accessible education, also have the nimbleness and the tools to do our jobs while respecting the need for government to have oversight of and a line of sight into the work that we do. I spoke earlier of the unique competitive nature of post-secondary education. It's a strength of the system that needs to be supported through streamlined accountability frameworks 
and more flexibility to respond to market needs. Finally, we have to embrace the reality that the system will and must transform as we evolve to meet changing student needs and growing competition. I will say loudly and firmly that innovation is alive and well in post-secondary, in every corner of post-secondary. We have expanding world-class online education. We have exciting applications of teaching and learning technologies in the classroom and in the labs. We have creative partnerships with Aboriginal peoples. We are doing really interesting things to, to support our students with uh, disabilities, market-focused uh, programs, some really interesting new credentials, and so on. But more is needed, and the real question is how that transformation both inside and outside the classroom is sustained and whose hands are gripping the steering wheel. The government's worked very closely with the sector on some very important issues over the past few years. Credit transfer, online education, strategic mandate agreements, they're, they're, they're important examples of where we've made some great progress. Now, underpinning this agenda from the government is the policy of differentiation, which I have to say is a kind of a loaded word in post-secondary, and without a really, really sharp definition, there's a little bit of apprehension about what it really means. So where do we go from here? Of course, we share and support the government's vision of a post-secondary system that is highly responsible to, responsive to the needs of the economy. That's absolutely hardwired into the DNA of the college system. It's been there since our birth. It's reflected in the close connections we have with the employer community. But how we shape and continue to build the post-secondary system is crucial. As a starting point, it's undeniable we would be whistling past the graveyard, as they say, if we, if we didn't realize the government's vision must be driven by the underlying fiscal realities of the province with its sharper-edged agenda of affordability and sustainability. And while some might say it's not all about the money, I think the reality is it's a lot about the money. And one, inevitably, one of the areas that gets looked at is are too many of us trying to crowd into the same space? If we ever could afford it, we certainly have to admit today, we can't afford to have every university that wants a research-intensive agenda or every college that can offer the complete suite of programs. And if we're properly connected through pathways and agreements between each other, transfer options that make it easy for the student to move, then institutional, institutional specialization, differentiation need not penalize any one of our students. <clears throat> Second, although we have seen some interesting innovations amongst municipalities, school boards, hospitals, other, other agencies of government, post-secondary has been virtually immune to structural change. And I think it's time to ask whether the how of delivering post-secondary education could achieve better outcomes for students through stronger critical mass, enhanced infrastructure, and scale for efficiencies, a system that is truly ready for the global marketplace not just of students, but of opportunities to share our expertise. A student-centered system is not built from the perspective of institutions, but asks how the programs and offerings of those institutions can most be effectively, comprehensively delivered to that incredibly diverse group of students we have across the province, and even beyond today. And as much as the fiscal situation, as much as what's happening in technology, as much as what global competition are doing to drive where our future lies, I think student mobility and aspirations should be a major driver in the changes ahead. Being student-centered means respecting the reality of today's students and their post-secondary journey. Many are not, we, we all know this, many are not in a sprint through post-secondary. They're searching from a huge range of choices for something to be passionate about. Students who follow that linear path from high school to the single program 
to a long, lifelong job, of course, they are the endangered species today. It can take two, three, even four times to get it right. That might involve two, three, or four institutions. We're also preparing today's students for a life of learning, a lifelong journey through the education system. They have to be ready for multiple careers and multi, multiple variations of careers as things evolve in the workforce. And we need a system that treats all those new realities as normal and makes every post-secondary journey as seamless as possible. So I think a number of transformational options should be explored on two important principles. One that one size doesn't fit all, and the other is that they have to involve, as we say, coalitions of the willing. Think about integrated university college and college university models that uh, have a broad set of credentials that connect to and build on each other in ways that we simply don't do today, much more innovation than our current ladder. New governance structures that encompass broader regional institutions, larger federated structures where allied ent entities specialize in complementary fields of study, specialized roles to niche players in certain disciplines and areas of study. We need to be creative about how we approach that transformation to preserve what's best about our current competitiveness, how to enhance our flexibility and our nimbleness, how to make sure we have the resources we need to deliver on the quality agenda that's at the top of everybody's priority list. And it's about building a single system, not any single institution. From my involvement in healthcare governance, I was on a hospital board for many years, I will observe that locally designed partnerships and initiatives tend to be more sustainable and deeply rooted than a top-down diktat. They are built from a sense of common purpose and genuine need. So I say to my colleagues, let's not wait for anybody to draw the map for us. We can take the leadership and transformation. Recently, I read an interview with a very inspiring leader in American post-secondary who was telling his colleagues that it was time to embrace differentiation and reclaim audacity. And when you think back to what the college system has accomplished over the past almost 50 years, it was audacious. And I thought he must have been thinking about us. So let me summarize. Starting with our broadly shared vision of a high-quality, accountable, and accessible post-secondary system, with the emphasis on the word system, there are three necessary ingredients. One, a newly forged partnership between colleges and universities based on a respect for the deep traditions of scholarly pursuit at universities and applied education at colleges, traditions that we need to accept are now blending. Two, a stronger trust-based relationship between the system and government based on a mutual understanding of the need for a responsive, innovative, and yes, competitive post-secondary system. And three, an embrace of the power of transformative structures, programs, and networks in the post-secondary system that put supporting our students through their educational journey as the driver of our work. And if this is a transformational moment in the history of Ontario's post-secondary system, it deserves a transformative plan. And when students are truly at the center, the rest will follow. Thank you very much.
Good afternoon. My name is Willa Black. I'm a proud member of the Board of Directors of the Canadian Club uh, and also Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Cisco Canada. Um, David, on, on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto, I want to thank you for the insights and perspectives you shared with us about post-secondary education and the critical role that Ontario's colleges play in securing the future for hundreds of thousands of students each year. Our accessible, efficient, and productive post-secondary system in Ontario places us at the forefront of Canada and among world leaders in terms of enrollment and attainment. It's a good news story, but today you gave us some new headlines. First, that we establish true partnerships between colleges and universities, no more hierarchies. Second, that we must invest in sophisticated technology-infused education. I like that one. And finally, that how we shape and build the system is crucial. Stronger critical mass, improved efficiency, transformative structures that put students at the center. It's easy to see how under your leadership, um, as you say, seeing the new realities as normal, Seneca's enrollment has reached record numbers and its program offerings have expanded. We appreciate the candor you shared in outlining how, as a global marketplace conditions change, so too must the institutions that teach, train, and advise job seekers. We remain confident that under your leadership, Ontario's college system will continue to remain at the forefront, adapting to meet the needs of its students. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Willa, and I echo her comments. And at the end of each of our events, I reflect on whether we fulfilled our mission. And today, with David's remarks, I think we're all better off in understanding how colleges and the future of education will function as that student-centric, integrated linchpin between our youth and our students and the future job opportunities domestically here in our country, and how our great educational institutions will remain a wonderful bridge to the outside world because we know when people come here to study, they visit us, they like us, and they'll come back and do business here. So thank you again, David. And on that note, I would like to uh, start to close our meeting and firstly to thank our sponsor, Colleges Ontario. Thank you again for your support. And I would also ask you to please take, an take a moment and take the opportunity to fill out our comment card, which you will find on your tables as we value your opinion and we're always looking for observations and ways to improve our experience and our programming and appreciate your feedback. This does conclude our program for today, uh, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We'd like to thank mediaevents.ca Canada's online event space, and VVC for live streaming today's event. And we're also grateful for Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian club events. Again, to learn more about the club, please feel free to visit canadianclub.org. And thank you for joining us. Today's meeting is now adjourned. Thank you very much.